Hey, what's happening, people? It's the Solar Kid. I'm back, and this is the Other Side of the Sun podcast. And today, I have a very special guest, all the way from Canada. Yeah, Chicago. Chicago. Okay, close. <laughs> we're close. Yeah, we're, we're still down south of the border. And his name is Acharya Nistadas. Is that correct? Now I pronounced it. Got it. Um, you are Krishna monk. That's right. So um, I've been very intrigued. I mean, like this in the last two years, I was just telling you uh, um, in the last five, six years, I read a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, that mm -hmm. kind of led me down another rabbit hole and started reading. And then last year I read the Mahabharata. And this year I read the Bhagavad Gita. And I also read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And all these things kind of just resonated with me. And um, I think that's why I find you fascinating because like through my like reading and my, um, you know, researching, Krishna actually is probably one of my favorite deities <laughs> that I've discovered so far. And um, you being a Krishna monk, well, it just kind of made me uh, more intrigued, which is why uh, I have you here today. So, um, yeah, if you can just give us like a little bit of your background and, um, I mean, what's it like? Like, what, uh, yeah, what does that involve? What does it entail? When we begin our spiritual journey, then different arrangements are made. Uh, in the Vedas, it's explained that all souls are evolving spiritually, that we are originally divine, but we've forgotten that. We're covered by ignorance. So, um, this is one universe. There's many universes. But in each universe, Krishna, Krishna means the supreme being. He makes arrangements how we can come back to that original divine consciousness. And so we find many teachers, many paths, many procedures to reawaken our divine consciousness. So much like yourself, um, you know, we're raised in Western traditions. But a lot of times that doesn't fully satisfy us. There's more questions that are not answered. If you talk about Western philosophy or a lot of Western religions, for some reason, we're not feeling fully satisfied. So sometimes we turn our face to the East. And there we find what was always there. India is sometimes considered the mother of religion, the motherland. And there's a lot of evidence now even Jesus went to India. And he's quite highly regarded in um, in Hindu philosophy. Well, like most of the teachers yeah. speak, speak very highly. He's mentioned, yeah, there's some mention in some Vedic texts. So um, that that is a point of you know ongoing consideration. There's kind of different sides, different angles, but there's something called a Bhavishya Purana, mm -hmm. which mentions him. Um, I don't have so much experience in that text. Anyhow, this original spiritual knowledge, uh, one word is called dharma. It means our natural, our natural position, what we are. Our culture is so much about, you know, who we are. What, how do I appear to others? But, but on a deeper level, it's really what, what am I? And I'm a soul. And that is the most important part of my life and my being. 
And so by accumulating a certain degree of this spiritual knowledge, one naturally wants to keep going or one wants to go further, take the next step. And so for myself, it was kind of an organic process where I realized I was studying religion in college. I don't want to study this as a speculator, spectator, you know, looking in, looking in through the window. I want to live it because that's the way you'll get the real experience. Were you studying um, like one particular religion or was it just like philosophy? World religion, you know. Okay, so yeah, of course. Like- so there are these different teachers, different guides, and they all give us in our searching phase one piece of the puzzle. Um, it's the most exciting journey of life. You know, we just lament how some people go through their whole life. They don't get to this point. We get so caught up in consumerism and materialism. But sometimes we miss the real purpose of it all, the real point. You know, you look up at the stars in the sky. It's meant to help generate some thought there. Okay, what, <laughs> what's the point of this? Who am I? What's the... So ultimately, I came to the Vedas. The Vedas are considered the oldest texts of spiritual wisdom on the earth. And they give us these kind of more details, more procedures, more processes and more guidance, how we can really achieve that ultimate identity, our spiritual identity. So you've studied, you've started reading some of the Vedas like Mahabharata and Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. And these are all shining more light on the actual nature of the divinity, the divine being, the supreme being, and our own nature as well. So that's a little little bit about how I got involved. So like, I mean, what's, I mean, when, when people think of a monk, you think like you just pray all day, you don't go outside, yeah. you just have fun. That's a good question. Um, when I first was kind of in the initial stages of my journey, I went to a temple, a Hare Krishna temple, and I saw there were actual monks there, like wearing the robes. I was like, oh my God, is this possible in today's age? <laughs> I grew up in Washington, D.C., so it was in the suburbs, you know, real rich area, fancy cars. And then here, this temple, there's monks. I'm like, is this a dream? <laughs> but at the same time, I thought, this is so cool. This is so awesome that this is still going on. You can still live this life. So I explored it. I tried it out. And there's nothing better. This For me, this is real life. and. Uh, it may seem, you know, a little archaic or strange in our modern culture, but for us, application or utility is the principle. So we have to learn how to take what are the principles of monastic life or ashram life? What are the basic principles? And then we have to apply them in our modern society, just yeah. like using technology. You know, yeah. I'm here on, here on the iPad. Yeah. Is that, I'm not a monk. Well, in our tradition, we utilize whatever is available for a spiritual cause. If I use all this for just self-aggrandizement, like what a lot of goes on in social media, then that would be examples. If I use this for sharing spiritual knowledge, there's no bar. And sometimes in India, this would be like a controversy. How much can we use? When India started modernizing, they had cars, Western things coming. You know, one school of thought was these are, are 
beautiful things. This is from us. And the tradition of bhakti, some of our great teachers said, no, we'll use this. We'll use these cars to share the spiritual knowledge and we'll use the printing press to print books and distribute it. So it's really how to find the right balance for each of us of our modern world and all its ways. You still there? Hello? Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. We just had a slight... Uh, Maybe cut out a little bit. Yeah, I think... Um, Technology. I don't think technology is agreeing with the spiritual conversation. They're like, no, don't don't spread that information. It's too good. The people need to be fed with greed and, you know, commercialism. <laughs> no, but I, I completely get that. Like for me, it's like, why wouldn't you use technology, you know? You know, like, because yeah. whether um, you are in this world, we live in this world, which kind of brings me to my next question, which is like, I'm on a spiritual path. I do like, I try and meditate. I, you know, I, I mean, like I have a practice, but I'm still in the world. I'm not in an ashram. I'm not in India. I'm not living in the Himalayas, you know? So it's, it's really hard to like stay present and mindful all the time, you know, whereas like someone who is in an ashram yeah. is, you can kind of live that life. I don't know. So, so I mean, my struggle is always trying to like, um, live within the dualistic nature of society, you know, especially for someone who is striving for spirituality, but grew up Western and still has the same kind of tugs and pulls to, you know, certain influences or like, um, I don't know what you want to call it, just like uh, temptation of, of the world because I live in it. I've got a family, I've got a wife, I've got kids, you know, I mean, I work in music, in the music business. There's loads of stuff that goes on there, you know, I mean, that's not considered to be awesome but i kind of have to navigate it in my own way i mean what's your your thought on that like for a normal guy trying to understand this this thing um well there's two points that i could bring up one is that actually yes our modern society has drifted so far from real spiritual culture that it's practically incompatible the Vedas give descriptions of different time ages, time periods, wherein human beings lived much longer mm. in different ages. Satya Yuga, Treta Yuga, Dvarpa Yuga, this is called Kali Yuga. Mm -hmm. Our age is very short, you know, we're always disturbed. I, I marvel at like in one day, aside from all the duties, like regulated things we have to do, we have like a few hours of the day. The rest of the time we're eating, we're sleeping, we're working, we only got really a few hours a day to really do something substantial spiritually often because it's very much compromised, like you said, by our culture. Now, this is very different from previous time periods where they could sit down and meditate for thousands of years. <laughs> like, on a yeah, just uninterrupted. So we are going an uphill battle here. And on the one side... It's also about priorities, what's really important to us, because when we prioritize our life, you know, sometimes people have a, you know, we, we tend to look outside. Why is the problem out there? Why is things not favorable? But it's really how we've set up our life. We're, the, we're, we're our own architect. So there is a lot of value in moving our life in a more simple spiritual direction. 
And one thing that we do in our tradition farms, we have farm communities. You know, our whole Western civilization is based on working very hard to get money, big cities, so you can work hard, so you can live and eat. But you can live and eat so simply, you wouldn't even believe it. Yeah. If you have a small piece of land and a cow, you can live in the most simple dwelling place, a little tiny, you know, 10 by 10 space, and you have a garden and a cow. Now your food's taken care of, your place to stay is taken care of. Guess what? You have all day to focus on what's really important in life. So we do encourage a more simple life. I live in Chicago, but this is not our model center. This is more or less in it um, a strategy. This is like a strategy to share knowledge with others, but this is not our ideal. Mm. The ideal is this simple farm, rural living. It's also so much pure for the mind. I'm, I'm here on a street in Chicago. I've got a siren going <laughs> off every five minutes. It's like someone died. Some fires there. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, I mean, you're in Chicago. It gets pretty cold there in the winter as well. So, like, how are you going to survive with one cow and, like... Uh... <laughs> all right, all right. Well, if you look at the geography of India, it is a tropical country. Mm. So, traditionally, where this culture is based, the sun is shining 90% of the time. That helps. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it can't be done in other places. There's also the Himalayas there. Mm. So even if it's freezing, the is the cow, you know, we, as you know, the cow is sacred. You can live actually very comfortably. And you can make so many things like yogurt, cheese, dairy, cream, all these things that even if you're in the Himalayas, you have some, you know, you have some financial help if you ever milk the cow cows give like 20 gallons of milk a day yeah so you have some excess so you trade it you know it's going to be a little chillier mm, i like that another question my uh a friend of mine who's on a similar path to me he wanted me to ask you um to what degree are you present and like what percentage of the day are you present? Maybe before I get there, I forgot that was one aspect of your question. The simple okay, living. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. But the other aspect is that um, there's no bar really in spiritual life in having a family and working a job. For the majority of people, that will be the main lifestyle. So that's not actually the issue. But the issue is how do you want to do that? How, in what way do you want to? work or have a house or have a family and there's other models than what our modern society puts in our face that this is how you have to do it so as i mentioned this farming um, model can very much simplify even having a family and working a job need not be bars to our spiritual development a lot of what it's based on is who you're around the biggest influence in terms of where you go in life is who you surround yourself with. The type of people that influence you. Even without, even unintentionally, whomever you're surrounded by will affect your consciousness. 
So when people have to go into a work environment where people are not spiritually conscious, that's where the big difficulty is. So our advice is that we find out what skills, what talents, what hobbies do I have, and how can I use that for a spiritual purpose? And, you know, how can I subsist doing that? These are good directions that one can contemplate in moving along, you know, in today's age. So how much of the day am I present? I hope I'm present right now. Yeah. (laughs) So this whole concept of being present, being in the moment, um, it's really a, on the highest level, it's extremely relevant because on the, the yoga text described this stage of samadhi or trance. Yep. So that's, that's what you was asking as well. Wherein when one is fully absorbed in what's called samadhi or trance. So here's another angle on your question, you know, be, be here now or be present, be here now. But our whole philosophy is actually be somewhere else now (laughs) because the material world is a place by nature which is as we're saying the nature of the soul is intelligence so exists a deeper realm the material to be guided to original spiritual states but there's a higher realm of reality that's the like a reflection so it's like let's say you're on your way to a meditation center and you're walking down the street and someone gets robbed someone gets shot someone curses at you now you could say just be present be here now but you know at that meditation center the atmosphere is so pure the people are so nice it's a very you you have a naturally spiritual experience so we're going through this world and we need to be present in order to bring us to that perfectional revelation of a spiritual realm. So a lot of the, the presence where it tunes in today is coming from Buddhist concepts of Zen meditation. Now, the Vedas actually are a little different. You, you should be present in what you're doing, but don't mistake that this material world is all in all. This whole show is temporary. Mm. And even beyond just being present, the the Bhagavatam explains there's three levels of God realization. Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavan, Tishapyate. So the impersonal aspect of the Supreme is called Brahman. Maybe you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. So Brahman is impersonal. It pervades all things. It's the divine energy of the Supreme which subsists and pervades everything. Now, generally, Buddhism, Buddhists are meditating on Brahman. If you've ever gone deep in meditation, sometimes you can enter into a state wherein there is no cognition of material things. So this is the first stage of God-realization. As one progresses, the Vedas explain that more Clarity is uh, revealed of Brahman, and that's called Paramatma. Mm. 
that actually this spiritual energy comes from a source. And that source is the supreme person. Param means Atma. supreme and Atma means soul. You remember from the Yoga Sutras, there's the individual Atma and there's the supreme Atma. Mm -hmm. So Paramatma is the soul within us, the supreme soul within us. So meditating on. But as one keeps going, the third level is called Bhagavan or the supreme divine person from whom everything emanates. That's Krishna. Mm -hmm. So Krishna exists in all of these features, but the most intimate feature is this personal feature of God. So when we say be here now, if I'm here now in this in the suburb in, in the downtown Chicago street where people are getting shot and raped, that's okay. But my point is that that is not the ultimate realization. So you should be present in order to practice bhakti, to practice devotion, to connect with Krishna. So when we do our meditation, getting back to your question, that you know, in the beginning of the day we wake up around 4 a.m. That's the best time of day to start meditating, and we do prayers and we chant the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, for two hours, you know unbroken now that's the time when you're really present with the holy name or the sound vibration because in the spiritual sense the vibration and the object are non-different that's why mantras are so powerful so at that point we want to enter into that extreme presence now as we go through our day it's not about just being present that's not enough one should be present. You should not be stuck in our head, in our mind, but that's not enough just to be present. There's so many meditation centers and schools which teach you just think of nothing, just stare at the wall, stare at a candle flame, be present. Okay, that might get you out of your head, but that's not actual devotion. Mm -hmm. So our path is that we really want to culture devotion, and that's done through chanting, through other means of connection with Krishna. So I just wanted to address it in that way because I know with the power of now and these things, there's a whole movement towards, it's all about just being in the moment. But yeah. that's, not, that's not actually, according to the yoga tradition, the highest level. Yeah, bhakti is probably, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And it's something, it's something I've actually experienced quite um, recently, like within the last six, seven months, is um, chanting mantras, you know, um, I mean, I've, I've started with Om, and even just Om in itself is, because when you sit there and you meditate, like, <laughs> your mind can just, like, go wherever, you know what I mean? And you can just sit there and be just thinking about loads of different things. But when you have a focus and, like, a mantra and you're chanting something, I find that it, it, it kind of attunes your spirit or your mind to a more, in, in, a, in a more directional way with, with purpose, you know? Yeah, if I can comment on that, the Bhagavad Gita talks a lot about controlling the mind. In the sixth chapter, which is called Dhyani Yoga, Krishna explains the mind is either your best friend or your worst enemy. One who's conquered the mind, for them the mind is the friend. Yeah. Or one who's failed to do so, the mind will remain the greatest enemy. Now think about our country. We're so worried about having enemies, you know, nationalism, globalism. 
They didn't realize the enemy is right here. It's not out there. So if our mind is not controlled, that's the real enemy because that will compromise our spiritual practice. And compromising that means spiritualizing our happiness in life, our integrity, and our actual satisfaction, which is what everyone is after universally. So to control the mind, this is the real, it's related with being in the moment. You know, that's a technique to control the mind. Do not give in to all of the impressions of the mind. But the Vedas say, actually, a mantra is a superior form of meditation because it's a positive engagement for the mind. If I tell you, think of nothing, maybe five seconds you can do it. Immediately, something will come in the mind. So that's the negative process. Don't think of this. Don't think of that. That's called the Jnana Yoga. Jnana. Yes. But another method is give the mind something positive to be absorbed in, like a mantra, a spiritual sound vibration, which will transport the mind to a higher realm. And when one becomes very accomplished and practiced in that, then naturally the the mind's influence to be so chaotic and so random is subdued. Mm. I've been trying to like incorporate more and I've tried to do a mandala, but I just couldn't complete the cycle because of life. Like, um, I mean, I try, I mean, not try, but I've been waking up at pretty much five o'clock for the last six months with a couple of days here and there, you know, where, um, and so I understand like how important that is, but like with life, it's, it's sometimes really hard, you know what I mean? Especially if you've got little kids and stuff. I mean, that, like you said, it's up to you to kind of um, find it. But the question I yeah, want to... Can I just finish up on that? Yeah, our, sure. our philosophy is be present with Krishna. Just being present, you might be present in so many crazy things, you know? Maybe you're present doing a drug deal. I completely... I get that. No, I get, that. get yeah, that. So so with Krishna, with this devotional presence... Just the last detail for that. Go ahead. No, I, I I think just what you said there, like, was almost, almost kind of answering the next question I was going to ask because I find it, um, I wonder, like, why are we presented with so many different options in this life, and why are there so many things that, like, you think are nice but are not good for you, or like foods, or like you know, drugs, or sex, or just everything in this world, like there's so many things that like feel nice or you want to be drawn to it. But, or like sometimes you think, oh, well, if I don't do a lot of it, you know, in moderation, it's cool. But then, you know, how come there's like, I don't know, I, I, I constantly question like, why, yeah, why, yeah. why is, why, exactly. <laughs> why have we been given such a, a hard test in life? You know, and why couldn't we just like, exactly what you're saying? And to me, this was answered so beautifully in one of the Upanishads, which were some of the first Vedic texts I started studying. I was actually hiking in the woods. They have some trails, and I was all alone with a few of these texts, manuscripts, just kind of studying. And there's a beautiful passage. It says, there are two things in life, the pleasant and the good. Now, blessed are those who choose the good over the pleasant because they can realize immortality. 
and misfortunate are those who choose the pleasant over the good because they return to the cycle of birth and death. Mm. So sense control. The Vedic picture is that human life is meant for tapasya or austerity. What is life? What is this human life for? This human life is distinct from the animal lives. The animal lives are like you're saying, it's just whatever feels good, whatever I can do for the body. The Vedas say human life, atato brahma jigyasa. The human life is meant for spiritual inquiry and spiritual perfection. So we have a different objective. And the Vedas say through transmigration, the soul goes through all of the different species of life, including the animals, before it comes to the human level. So if we come to the human level and all we want to do is satisfy our body, which is what the animals do, then guess what? You'll get an animal body. So you can do that. If you just want to have sex, guess what? There's some creatures which are much more efficient than human beings, like pigeons. They mate like 26 times a day or maybe an hour. So that's not the objective of human life. Eating. There's other animals that are much better at eating than we are. The human life is designed as a medium, as a vehicle for achieving the spiritual perfection. Thank you. <laughs> so, so, we, so we have to exercise what's called self-control. Sama. Sama dhamma tapasocham. To cultivate divine qualities which keep our consciousness on the right path. Because whenever you give in to these temporary gratifications, they divert your mind. We were saying how important is this mind, how to control it carefully. Whenever you give in to these sensory gratifications of the body, your whole consciousness becomes dragged down to the material level. And then you're more worried about your body. We're not the body. We're going to have to leave this body in a few years. You know, we don't take the body with us, but the soul, we don't want to. Another analogy is, let's say you have a nice bird cage and you spend your whole life painting the cage, polishing it, decorating the cage. You forgot the bird inside. The bird is dead. The bird died. So that's the soul. We don't want to spend the whole life, our whole society, just taking care of our bodies, but we forgot the soul. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. That was for me, man. That was for me. But something else, something for for um for like my viewers or for other people. Something that somebody asked me, like I've I've I, 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 I get the concept of um, death and rebirth, but like for someone who doesn't understand that, like because a lot of religions teach you're going to go to, just going to go to heaven and that's it and stuff like that. How would you explain? Because I get it, like, I'm, well, internally, I'm, I might not be able to explain, but I understand, like, especially through reading, um, going through the cycles of death and rebirth in order to reach um, somebody, you know what I mean? Or like you're the highest um, form of, of yeah. Samsara. Samsara, sorry. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is when you study the Vedas, you get a whole other concept of life. Our uh, guru, Srila Prabhupada, he said the defect of this situation is people do not know that there's life after this life. Now, if you didn't know that life continues after this one lifetime, 
you're going to live your life in a very certain way. A lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of unknown, and a lot of like this immediate gratification. This is just what it's about. You, this is it. Now, if you were trained from the childhood, understanding reincarnation, that you're going through many lives, the soul is eternal. This is a lifetime of growth and development. You're going to live your life in a totally different way. So reincarnation is the principle that the soul, our, we are eternal, and we're going through many, many bodies, as we said, to continue our evolution of consciousness, that, of which there's different stages. The plants, the animals, these are like the very covered consciousness. The consciousness of the soul is there, but it's exhibited to a very limited degree. Insects, fish, then you come to mammals. You can see in all the species, some are more conscious. They can exhibit the symptom of consciousness, which is of the soul, to a higher degree. Then you come to things like chimpanzees, how much more they are than a tulip. Now, the soul is present in both. The soul is sacred. All of life is sacred. We have to see in that way. So an intrinsic principle of that is ahimsa, nonviolence. Don't harm others. It's very simple. But we have a culture which doesn't take that into consideration, especially with the slaughterhouses, all of the, you know, we, we're just asleep to that. But the life, life is sacred. Life is a symptom of the soul. So as the soul comes to it successively increases in capacity of the body. So this is a gradual evolution from the lowest life forms, which like trees, plants, fish, reptiles, mammals, the soul goes life after life through all of those species, 8,400,000 before it comes to the human form. Then this human form is the unique junction where you have this intelligence, you have reason and logic, you have so much more capacity to choose right or wrong, good or bad. So this human life is the life of responsibility. And that's the doorway. From there, all the other species, you're naturally promoted up to the next life form. Like you look at Charles Darwin, he studied these different finches and one was like this and the next one was a little bit bigger. The next one had a little bit more. So they're very similar, but each life, each species is a progressive bump up for the consciousness. Now in the human life, then we have this doorway. In the human life, then if we get this spiritual knowledge, we can decide to keep going up or you can go back down. It's not that once you're on the human life, you're permanently there, you're going up. No. How you live your life, the Bhagavad Gita teaches, whatever you contemplate in life the most, that determines your next life. So there's some kind of analogies, some examples of that, which are a little, you know, stark, but I think you can handle it. Mm. We covered, let's say someone, some people are just really into sleeping. They have like a sleep thing 
where they just want to sleep all day or just, <laughs> yeah. the material nature is so kind. Hey, you just want to sleep. You're not into like really being motivated in life. Here's, a, here's another vehicle for you, which will allow you to sleep for a good amount. It's called the body of a bear. You can sleep for six months and no one will disturb you. <laughs> they go into hibernation. Another example of some people are really into just, you know, meat eating, like maybe that's like they're a butcher or they're just like, well, if you got the body of like a tiger, you could really do a little better than the human. So on the one hand, we have these, if we don't practice any spiritual life, and it, we said our consciousness has kind of evolved to that level, then there's a more suitable, actually you will achieve by your meditation by the pattern of mindset that you've developed a corresponding body so that could be you could go back down to the animals you can remain in human society where you want to live you want to enjoy you want to get the bigger house or whatever in your next life some of us you know some people have that or if you cultivate this tapasya or higher spiritual practice you go promoted upward and there's certain Beings called the devas, the demigods, like Indra, Varuna, Brahma, Shiva. There's higher beings also. Now, if you engage in very dharmic activities, which are very purifying, you get promoted to that level. But the Vedas say, don't stop there. There's a higher goal. The Paramgatim, the supreme goal is that you transcend this whole process of samsara. You break the cycle and you go back to the original spiritual realm, which is our, our, our home, actually. Mm. Dude, <laughs> I get it. I completely do, man. Like, it's, it, like this information really resonates like, deeply with me. And um, it's a path that, I find hard sometimes, but I feel is so necessary for me personally anyway. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I, I feel, I feel it. Like, so what I was going to say is like, is, um, I have many interests, uh, like sports and music and all these things. Pretty sure you're going to say that by practice, it will kind of give me the answers to, to dealing with these things. But like, say I, I, I support my favorite football or like soccer team, as you guys would say, um, like how helpful is that to my spiritual progress? Am I still, can I still be like a normal guy and just enjoy, you know, a, a drink with friends and watch my football team and still be able to, or is it like a thing where I'm only going to get to that, like, be able to get rid of um, or come out of this samsara by completely relinquishing everything and becoming a monk and just focusing on this spiritual practice every day. Hmm. I know, I know yeah. in some texts it, it has said of some um, gurus who were married and have kids and, you know, I mean, those types of things as well. The main point is that it's gradual and it should be natural. It's dangerous if you artificially adopt a standard for which you don't have the qualification. So we're all growing, you know, and the spiritual knowledge is coming to us at different stages of our life. 
And the more important thing is that I want to take the next step for me. What's my next step? I don't want to just artificially renounce everything and go to the woods and just give it all up because that's not going to be, that's not going to be sustainable. So I, I need to think about, okay, what are a few changes I can make in my life that would help me come to the next step? So our teachers explain this progress is about just one step after the other, after the other. Once you get on the next step, then you should, you know, you kind of change a little bit. And there's certain habits, there's certain things that you carried before that you've gone past. And you don't want to fall back into those. Now you get seated on that next step. You get accustomed to that. Well, you can't hang out. Guess what? You guys start taking that next step at a certain point. Yeah. So we don't, um, we don't advocate motivation through fear. Some traditions do that. <laughs> and you mentioned... Some people think, well, after this life, you just go to heaven. But you didn't mention a lot of them say, well, after this life, you just go to hell. <laughs> so, so, that, so this is like motivation through fear, right? It's, it's, it's trying to impress someone. So this is a very more, more base motivation why to do something because I'm scared. Yeah, I lived that, By the way, I lived in this that for a long time, man. Like. I was so scared of yeah. going to hell, bro. <laughs> by the way, in this transmigration, the soul, the, there's no such thing as eternal hell. The soul, the soul is always free to continue to evolve. So um, this is a question that will, as you said, you kind of answered it, that as you continue practicing, the next step will be more clear. You know, that light will come for me. So it's an exciting journey and don't, don't ever be discouraged. But at the same time, you have so much knowledge and experience already that you, you have the qualification, you know, to get serious and you can really amaze yourself when you commit and you dedicate yourself to something. Oh, I mean, I've noticed um, a big change in my life, like in the last six months when I actually, um, it's weird that 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 word pops up in my head like when my alarm goes off. I mean, a couple of months ago, I didn't even have to use my alarm. I was just waking up at like four thirty or like five o'clock, and the first thing that popped into my mind when I was like, "Oh, I want to sleep," was just like devotion, dedication, and I just get up and do it. And like I've seen positive changes in many aspects, many things like you said that you've kind of transcend and leave behind and stop doing. Um, in the last two years, I've stopped eating meat. Um, just certain things, like like you said, it's it's ha it's happened naturally. So I'm I'm trusting the process, and um, I'm just I'm just a bit wary of the time. Are you still okay for time? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm just I'm basically just trusting the process, and um, yeah, like I'm enjoying it so far. Like I think, like you said, the the whole idea of fear. Uh, growing up, it was like, if you did something bad, you didn't want to go to God and go and say your prayers or something. You'd just feel, you'd feel further away from your creator or whatever you believe in. Well, for me, like, you know, I mean, Jesus or God, like, and I wouldn't actually want to pray. I wouldn't want to go to church because I feel like I'm I'm too far away. Whereas now, if I do kind of, you know, fall back into like um, something that I feel is not helpful for me or like, you know, um, 
just something that's that's not good for my life. I feel like the next morning I'll wake up and do my meditation again and kind of in the same way in the circles of life and death um, and, and re- death and rebirth, like when I go to bed at night, waking up and starting again and trying again and trying again and just continuing with that process in, in order to just, like you said, you know what I mean, following it and uh, working towards it. So you just got to, you know, we all have to do that homework. Yeah. Find out what what are the habits that I feel are holding me back. You know, and we can make a list. And then there's all the resources will come to us, how to overcome them. The soul is unlimited. Actually, we have unlimited power within us when we're tuned in to the divine source. So that's something that I think um, for us, this chanting, chanting these mantras, and I can also share some, some of these books with you in more detail that we've discussed. And then little by little, you know, we're like the caterpillar. You know, we go through this intense, you know, he goes into a cocoon. So this is like our uh, austerity or our practice. You know, we've got to push ourselves. And that's a point you brought out, like, you know, we have to exert some, some force. Some force is required. And um, in the beginning, you're saying, you know, it's kind of tough. And the co- my comment to that is that, well, nothing good is just easy. Mm. Now, you try to understand the highest spiritual thing, the greatest thing, the best thing. I don't think it's easy. Some are good things. That's an ideal. But that is so worth sacrificing for. And that's what makes our life actually very productive and nourishing. When we have this high ideal and we work towards it, people want satisfaction in life. But satisfaction doesn't come by always taking the easy route, just as we said, going for the good. Excuse me, going for the pleasant. It comes by really working hard, transforming ourselves to achieve the good. So that's called tapasya. That tapasya in Krishna consciousness, you'll actually get more taste by working hard in spiritual life than you will for the temporary material gratifications. You, you tap into this higher source of pleasure. The name Krishna means pleasure. God has unlimited pleasure. And when we connect with him, this spiritual pleasure will far outweigh the material pleasure. So this is how it works, that you start getting these spiritual experiences that are so deep that naturally you'll want to give up things that are in your way. Yeah. It's, it's a very organic thing, but we have to, we, in the beginning, you know, you've got a big train, you want it, it takes a lot of momentum to get that thing going a little bit. So you've got a good practice waking up early. I would say try chanting this Maha Mantra, the Hare Krishna Mantra, maybe 10 minutes a day, and let's keep in touch, you know, and also there's so many programs now happening online. Usually we have centers. We have Hare Krishna centers where we share this. We have open programs. Now everything's kind of gone yeah. digitalized. Yeah. And I'll, I'll share like um, any links or information that you have. Like in, um, if you can just email me um, sure. just any information you might want to share with people who are interested. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm overwhelmed and I'm grateful. I'm humbled. Okay, one more. What's your last question? You got time for one more. Um, I think you've answered all my questions, you know, like I, I spoke about duality. I spoke about the spiritual path. And or comments, final, final comments. 
Yeah. My final comments? Sure. Do you have any last words you want to articulate? I'm good. I'd, I'd love you to leave me with something interesting or love uh, leave uh, people watching with um, something mm -hmm. to think. Actually, no, no, no. I did have another question. Um, when people see Hare Krishnas in the street, yeah, like a lot of people will be like, oh my God, who are these mad people chanting and singing and like, what is going on here? How do you relate um, or do you even try to relate to people who don't get it? Like, or do you just allow people to, to gravitate? The people who want to know will get to know. And the people who think it's madness or whatever, we just kind of leave them be. Is that, is that kind of what you do? Or? We had this question come up in the initial days of our movement where there was all sorts of, you know, strategies to try to undermine what, what we're doing, which is actually an extremely authentic ancient practice. So, um, the public often says, these people are crazy. <laughs> so our founder, Shri Prabhupada, he wrote an article, who is crazy? Who is crazy? If someone identifies with a ma matter, with a bag, our body, which is blood, Urine, pus. If you analyze the body, what is the body? It's material elements, earth, water, air. It's all packed up together. If you identify with a lump of matter, you're crazy. <laughs> We're not. You're crazy. So who's really crazy? So people live their life in this delusion of identifying with the body as the self. And they go through their whole life that way. Sorry, you guys are crazy. Mm -hmm. One who knows who they are spiritually, they'll naturally be joyful. Yeah. And an integral part of that is the desire to share spiritual happiness with others. That's why they, we go on the streets. That's why we chant. We try to get people to also wake up. One mantra we have is called Jeev Jago. It means sleeping soul. Wake up. Mm. That's the essence of our philosophy. We're sleeping. And we need to wake up. And that's done through the power of this mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. Thank you, Solar Kid. You're a child of the sun. I am. Thank you so much. Acharya Nista Das, and this is the Other Side of the Sun podcast. I'm going to try and get you on probably, um, maybe in a good couple of months, maybe even a year or like, well, whenever, and um, just to kind of see how far we've come and like you know maybe we can have a chat again hey you got it all the best all the best respects to all your viewers if anyone's interested also i have a channel vedas one and uh putting up some more spiritual information v-e-d-a-s and the number one check it out instagram facebook youtube and uh i look forward to it again thank you thank you so much man peace